Let's pray. Lord, we pray for our Ukrainian and Russian brothers and sisters. Um, Lord, we are part of your empire um, that will come in the future, and we long for it, and we are connected with them by deeper bonds than nationality or background. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters that you would give them grace um, to live for you, um, to live a life that is evident to those around them. Lord, we pray that that would stand out as a light in the midst of um, very atheistic peoples. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would um, please draw more people to yourself through this. I pray that you would bless the faculty and the students of the seminary to continue to train, to be used as instruments, to, as we read about and we heard about last week, um, that they would be shepherds that can be put out into the harvest, uh, where the harvest is much, but the workers are few. Lord, we thank you that those who have already been sent out and pray that you would preserve the seminary, preserve the men, and preserve the faculty, preserve that work for your, your glory in that region. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, as we hear more about mission, um, and to have that as a backdrop is amazing, O oh Lord God, um, because that's the way the world normally is, of danger, of cert- uncertainty, and Jesus, you knew that. And so we just pray that you would prepare our hearts as we listen to your teaching from the word this morning. Um, give us ears to listen, uh, give me clarity, and uh, Lord, help us to conform to what you are saying in your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, and we're going to, when you turn there, you can, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We do that to honor the Scriptures, um, because when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And so we read Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 5, and I'm actually going to read the whole discourse. This is the second of five big discourses in Matthew. The first one was the Sermon on the Mount. This is the second big one. Uh, so if you need to sit, um, at, you know, if you can't stand for the whole time, I understand, so go ahead and sit if you need to, but I'm going to read from 10.5 through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town, that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the, day, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles." 
When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. You may be seated. Like I just said, we are entering the second of Matthew's big five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And remember why Matthew is giving those five key discourses. They really link to the very end of the book in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus says, Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So what is that content of teaching all that Jesus commanded? Well, we've got a good chunk of it, a good starter package in the five discourses. And so the first discourse we saw was Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where we see kingdom righteousness. If you are a disciple of Jesus, what does it look like to live as a citizen, even as uh, during this time where his kingdom hasn't fully come, what does it look like to live now as a citizen of his kingdom. And now we enter the second main discourse in the book of Matthew. Uh, If this one has a name, it's called something like the mission discourse or something like that. Um, 
But recall the setting. We really saw the setting last week. Remember Jesus, after all he's done in chapters 8 through 9, he looks out on the crowds, the crowds that are following, those neutral clouds. They haven't necessarily committed to following Jesus, and yet they're representative of the people of Israel. And Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowds because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And you remember that led us back to Ezekiel 34, where that's described, where because of Israel's failed leadership, the failed leadership of its kings, of its religious leaders, the people of Israel went into exile, and it was a similar situation in the first century. Jesus is saying, you guys are still in exile. You're still under the thumb of foreign oppressors. Why? Because of the failure of your kings, of your elders, of your scribes, your spiritual leaders. But that created a potential, a a, a great harvest, a great harvest where, where shepherding has failed. There's a great harvest to be had if there's true shepherding. Jesus is that ultimate true shepherd. Ezekiel 34 talks about the descendant of David who will shepherd God's people and ultimately God himself. And then those things merge in Jesus because he is the God man. He is Yahweh himself, the ultimate shepherd. And then he is the Davidic king who is fulfilling the Davidic covenant. And he named the workers. He said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. And then he named them. He named the 12 apostles, the 12 patriarchs of the new covenant community. You remember Jacob was called Israel, and then he had the 12 tribes. Well, in a similar sort of way, Jesus is representing all of Israel in his person. And now he's named the 12 patriarchs of this new covenant community that he is establishing, and he's given them authority. He's given them authority. And as we walk into this text, you already heard it um, as we walked into it, um, this is directed first and foremost to the 12 apostles. It is directed first and foremost to the 12 apostles. Now that creates for us a question. Uh, If it's directed to the 12 apostles, how do we apply it? How do we apply it? If these are the instructions that Jesus gave to the 12 apostles in a very particular mission, there are particular things they're called to do, like only go to Israel or even healing that we are not called to do, nor is Matthew's audience called to do. And so the question is, how do we apply this? But really, to answer that question, we ask another question, which is this. How should Matthew's audience have applied this? What was Matthew's intent? Because he's recording this as one of the 12 apostles. He's one of those 12. He's recording it for his audience. And obviously, he understands his audience, they're Jewish Christians, but they're not the 12 apostles. So why is he recording this for them? Why is he recording this for them? He's recording this for them when he knows that there are things in there that are not true for his audience. His audience is not restricted to just Israel. Uh, We know that because how does Matthew end? Go to all the nations. Go to all the nations. His audience is not called to heal like the apostles were called to heal. How do we know that? 10 verse 1 says that Jesus gave authority to heal only to the 12 apostles. So what is Matthew doing here? Why is he recording this? Well, given Matthew's overall purpose and flow of the narrative, it seems as though one... He is demonstrating Jesus' mission to Israel, setting up for, we have already seen this a little bit in Matthew, but we're going to see it more and more. He's setting up for the increasing rejection of the mission of Jesus and his apostles. This builds the framework for Jewish Christians that Matthew is writing to 
to understand why there is a proper separation between the church and the majority of the Jews who have rejected their Messiah. He's writing to an audience that is probably in Palestine. Their friends, their relatives, their neighbors are Jews, but they're Jews, by and large, who have rejected the Messiah. So how do they think about that? Well, Matthew builds on the story by saying, well, let me show you what, how Jesus attempted to reach the people. Let me show you what that looked like. And so he's building that framework for his audience so that they understand, okay, given all that Jesus and the apostles did, it makes sense why we're now separating from our Jewish friends and relatives by and large. But then there's a second thing that Matthew is doing, and I've already alluded to it, right? Matthew at the end of the the gospel says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And this is teaching of Jesus to the apostles, something he commanded the apostles and something they were supposed to pass on. So there are things that Matthew is expecting his audience to extract. He's expecting his audience to extract timeless principles for their own mission, recognizing what is transferable to them as disciples and what is not. There are things in there that are specific to the 12 apostles, but even those things that are specific to the 12 apostles, there's principles that underlie those that are timeless, that that can be extracted for Matthew's audience and for us as well. And so as we walk through this, as we walk through this, what we need to see, we need to look at and discern what is there for the 12 apostles, but what's there for us. We need to discern what's concrete and specific to this situation and what's there for us. For us. We can't just directly apply everything that's said in this section. We have to discern through it, and that's what we'll be doing together. That being said, as we walk through this, there are many principles in this for how we think about proclaiming the gospel. If you're in Christ, you understand this. Uh, Jesus called his disciples, and he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And that is true for every one of us who is in Christ. We are fishers of men. We are to be proclaimers of the gospel. And so as we walk through this, you might say, well, I don't know how to proclaim the gospel. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how that feels. Well, there are many principles in here that are going to train us, that are going to teach us what does it look like to proclaim the gospel. So, given that backdrop, let's jump into the text this morning. The big idea of this text that Matthew has for us, um, that he had for his original audience, and it's there for us, is this. Work Jesus' harvest of his people for their peace following his orders. Work Jesus' harvest of his people for their peace following his orders. Remember last week the idea was plead for more workers and get ready to go to work. Well, now Jesus is telling his, uh, his apostles, his disciples that he's named, okay, here's what you do in going to work. And that's what we need to take away as well. And the first thing we see in this text is this, work for Israel. Work for Israel. Look at verse 5. These 12, so these 12 that Jesus just named in 10, 2 through 4, he gave that list of his 12 apostles. These 12, Jesus sent after giving them orders, saying. Now, a couple things to note before we get into what Jesus says, the instructions he gives. When when the, the text uses the word sent, it's a related word. It's the verb version of the word for apostle. Remember, Jesus just named these 12 apostles. And what was an apostle? Remember, we talked about it last week. An apostle is, in that world, it was an ambassador. It was an emissary uh, sent from a foreign country to another. 
It was someone who was authorized to speak on behalf of another, to act on behalf of another. Uh, We use the illustration in our day even of a power of attorney, someone who has the authority to act and speak on behalf of another. And so Jesus tags into that same word of apostle by the word sent. It's really the idea of sent as an emissary, sent as an apostle, sent as an ambassador. And so he's sending them now, and he's giving them orders. He's giving them orders. And the orders he gives are contained in, really, uh, from verse 5 all the way to verse 42. That's his instructions for his disciples. Now, let me uh, give you, uh, we read through this whole section, and let me just give you a clue as to where we're going in the next few weeks. There's a structure, just like any good um, sermon, there's a structure to where Jesus is going with this discourse. You will notice in chapter 10, many times Jesus says, truly I say to you, and then he says something that's a promise. That happens, that structures the rest of this chapter. There are four times this happens. First one is in verse 15, which ends the first section of instruction. Uh, The next one is in verse 23, truly I say to you, uh, that ends the next section of instruction. Uh, The next one doesn't have a truly I say to you, but there is a promise in verses 32 through 33. And then there's a final truly I say to you in verse 42. That gives the structure of this discourse. And what you're going to notice is as Jesus works through that, really this week he's giving us the instructions proper. These are the instructions proper. This is what you're supposed to do, disciples, uh, as you go out on mission. The rest of the three, the, the remaining three out of those four sections are going to be, well, okay, here's how people are going to respond to you, and here's how you're going to respond to them. So the first part, what we're going over today, here's the instructions proper, and then the rest of the chapter that we're going to go over in the coming weeks is here's how people are going to respond to you, and here's how you're going to respond to them. So uh, let's get into those instructions proper. So Jesus says this, into the way of the nations do not depart, and into a city of the Samaritans do not enter. Now, this is a little bit geography. Where are they at? They're in Galilee, right? They're in the far north of Israel. To the north of Galilee and to the east is predominantly Gentile territory. To the south is Samaria uh, Samaria, uh, with the Samaritans, who are not Jews. And he's saying, don't go, essentially what he's saying is don't go to the north, don't go to the east, don't go to the south, stick in Galilee still. Stick in Galilee and do what? Verse 6, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But go rather, so don't do this, but do this. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And remember, this language, we've already seen it. Jesus has uh, talked about it last week. He looks out in the crowds, and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And we saw that whole Ezekiel 34 context last week. Well, he's still thinking that. He's still thinking of gathering his people. That's why he's sending these guys out. He's sending them out as workers to gather the harvest, to gather these people. In what sense? Gathering them in repentance. That's been the message all along, and we'll see it again here. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near to gather God's people, to gather Israel under the leadership of its king, under the leadership of the Davidic king, Jesus Christ. And now Jesus is sending out his apostles, his emissaries, his heralds 
his powers of attorney to proclaim the same message, to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, now you might ask, well, wait a minute, why? Why? Why is he just telling him, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, just go to Israel? You might be asking, well, why would he say that? Obviously, Jesus has no problem interacting with Gentiles or Samaritans. We see him interacting with Samaritan women in John 4. We see him uh, in Matthew interacting with the Gentile centurion. So he doesn't have a problem interacting and proclaiming the message of the kingdom. In fact, in Matthew 8, he said, there's going to be many that recline at table in the kingdom of God that are from the nations. So that's not the issue. It's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's, that's not the issue. The issue is the priority of Israel and God's plan of it for Israel as a nation. God's plan and priority for Israel as a nation. This starts all the way back, you guessed it, in the Old Testament in Genesis 12. You can turn there with me if you want, but the start, the backdrop to what Jesus is doing, uh, it really starts in Genesis 12. We get Genesis 1 through 11, God is working, God is moving, there's the Tower of Babel, and then all of a sudden we get a huge shift in God's work in redeeming the world in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And this forms the key theological backdrop for what Jesus is saying. Genesis 12, 1. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what's happened in Genesis up to this point is essentially a bunch of failure and curse a bunch of failure and curse. But here we get the language of blessing, of the promise of blessing, which would ultimately point us back to Eden, where man is fellowshipping with God and enjoying his presence. And what God is doing, this is the start of what we call the Abrahamic covenant, where God is going to particularly work with the nation of Israel, with this people, with this family, to do what? Not just to bless them, but to bless all the families of the world. God is saying, God's going on record in Genesis 12 and saying, I'm going to work through your family, not just for your blessing, but I'm going to weld the fate of your nation to the fate of the world. I'm going to weld the fate of the nation of Israel to the fate of the world, which is exactly what happens as we walk through the Old Testament. We see Israel fail again and again and again, and really, uh, even in the prophets, what's pointed out is because you're failing in loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because you're failing in obeying God's law, not only is it hurting you, it's hurting the nations. That's really what Jonah, the book of Jonah, is all about. And then it continues um, such that uh, God's going to deal with this issue. How is he going to deal with this issue of Israel's disobedience? He's going to deal with the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Again, we keep coming back to that text. Uh, the new covenant is first and foremost for the nation of Israel. It's first and foremost for the nation of Israel so that they will obey the Lord. Why? Because when Israel is obeying the Lord, they're submitted to him, they know the Lord in a salvific way, then God's going to bless them, and not just them, all the nations of the world. Israel has a priority in God's plan. It's the same thing in Ezekiel 34. Remember, we walked through Ezekiel 34, and at the end of Ezekiel 34 last week, there's a covenant of peace 
that is promised. That's the new covenant where God's going to gather his people. He's going to gather his sheep under his reign, under his shepherding. And it's not just going to be, it's going to be peace for his people, but then by extension, the nations of the world. Paul says the very same thing in Romans 11, Romans 11, 13 through 16, Romans 11, 25 through 32. You don't have to turn there, but let me summarize it for you. Paul says, look, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations, to make Israel jealous so that they'll repent as a nation. They'll become participants in the new covenant so that all the world might experience blessing. That's essentially what he says. And so this is what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5 and 6. He's going first to the Jew and then later to the Gentile. It's a priority for Israel because even to this day, God is still going to accomplish his plan ultimately through the repentance and gathering of Israel. And through that gathering of Israel, the, the, uh, the kingdom of Jesus, as they turn to their Messiah, they repent and entrust themselves to their Messiah. He will reign over Israel. Jesus will reign over Israel and then all the nations of the world in blessing, in his kingdom. That's why Israel. And it's like I said, it's true even for this day. The apostles were going out to work for Israel and even us, like Paul alludes to, that's still the plan. So even as we share the gospel, even as we go out and proclaim the gospel, we want individual souls saved, no matter what nation, nationality, background, doesn't matter, we proclaim the gospel indiscriminately. However, through that, we also know that God is going to use that as a means one day to make Israel as a nation jealous so that they will repent and accept their Messiah. That's what we want so that the world might be restored to Edenic conditions. So what do we take away from this? Uh, we're not restricted to Israel, but we recognize that God is not done with Israel and what he's doing with the Gentiles, even now, is part of reaching them ultimately for Christ. So we pray for them, we pray for Jews, and we pray for their repentance as a nation. You know, Jews today are by and large secular. The nation of Israel is a secular nation. And, and just like in the Old Testament, he's not going to bless them in an ultimate sense until they repent and entrust themselves to Christ. That's what we desire for them. There was a sweet opportunity when we were in California during seminary. Uh, Ashley worked for a time for a company that was owned by a couple of Jews. Uh, there's a, there's a large, larger Jewish population in L.A. One day we were sitting down at lunch with the owners. Uh, I, I had a little bit of side work I could do for them. And they asked, so what's the difference between Christians and Judaism? Like, they're, they're totally secular. They just, you know, they don't, have, they don't really practice or anything like that. And it was like, boy, this is, this, is, this is such a privilege. And I was, you know, I was trying to lay out for them, listen, here's God's plan for you. And this is a privilege for me as a Gentile to be able to show you, here's your Messiah. This is, this is all for you, really. And I just get to kind of come in on the coattails, you know, and to proclaim to them the gospel. And it's such a privilege because we know that's how God's going to work in the future. So we work for Israel, even as the apostles were. Second, we need to take this away. Work with proper methods. Work with proper methods. Look at verse 7. 
Jesus says this, now going, so that's just the last thing he said, right? Don't go here, but go here. Go, don't go to these people, but go to these people. Now Jesus elaborates, okay, here's who you're to go to. Now let me elaborate for you on what you're supposed to do as you're going. Now going, uh, proclaim saying that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Um, this word for proclaim, uh, it's this word that means, uh, sometimes we translate it preach, but the idea is proclamation like a herald. Uh, this is the same word that was, is used of Jesus, proclaiming the very same message. It's used of John the Baptist, proclaiming the very same message. It's the idea that you're a herald. What's a herald? Oh, you guys know, if, think of mid, a medieval kingdom, and the king issues a decree and the herald is supposed to go out to the cities and the villages and to stand in the square and say, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. This is what the king says. This is the kind of proclamation that they're talking about. Proclaim as a herald saying what? What's the message? The kingdom of heaven has drawn near, which is what? The exact same message that John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 2, it's the exact same summary message that Jesus has in Matthew 4, 17. This is just an extension of the work of John the Baptist and uh, the work of Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, repent. Now, the word repent isn't used here, but it's understood. Why, why should we talk about the kingdom of heaven drawing near? Well, because the kingdom of heaven drawing near, God's heaven, God's uh, God's God's kingdom coming down from heaven to, to encompass earth under his chosen king. When he does that, it's a joyful thing, but it's also a scary thing because when he brings that kingdom, it's going to come with judgment. It's going to come with judgment. None can enter that kingdom who are not righteous in God's eyes, which is why John the Baptist, which is why Jesus has been calling for repentance and which is why the apostles are to issue the same message. Repent, turn your allegiance from sin and self. Don't No longer be a rebel to the king, but submit to his lordship. Submit to his leadership because his kingdom has drawn near. In what sense had the kingdom drawn near? Well, there's a couple ways. One, these are apostles. These are the heralds. These are the representatives of the king. Uh, the king is there, and the king embodies the kingdom in himself, but now he's commissioned these people to proclaim the kingdom, and so the kingdom in their persons has now drawn near. But even more than that, and we'll see it here in a second, Jesus has not only commissioned them, he's given them authority to heal, to give the foretastes of the kingdom for healing, and we see those listed here in verse 8, we'll read those in a second, but just like Jesus, he's, Jesus is not only proclaiming a message, he's giving foretaste of what the kingdom is going to look like, where every disease is gone, every evil force is gone and submitted to him. So in that sense as well, as they do these miracles, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. We proclaim the message. The first and foremost thing, everything that they're doing is oriented around proclaiming this message. The kingdom of heaven draws near, and so the implication is repent, repent, the same thing that Jesus has said. And even here, we can take away things for us. 
Sometimes we talk about sharing the gospel. You know, we always use that language. I'm going to share the gospel with you. And that's not necessarily bad, right? We, we've received grace, and we want to share that grace. We want to extend that grace to others. But sometimes it does us a disservice because Jesus is not just calling us to share the gospel. He is doing, calling us to do that. He's calling us to proclaim it. He's calling us to proclaim it like an ambassador, An ambassador doesn't negotiate terms. He just needs to relay the message. He just needs to proclaim. Are you proclaiming as an ambassador? A a disciple, we said it before, a disciple is always brought into the mission. Everyone's brought into the mission of proclaiming the gospel. Are you proclaiming like an ambassador, not negotiating? Sometimes, you know, when you're in a situation, you're proclaiming the gospel to someone, you're like, Uh, well, let's find some neutral ground. Let's try to agree on some things and let's build from there. Sometimes that works, but the reality is you can never never lose the sight of the fact that you don't have the option to negotiate. You are a commissioned representative, an ambassador to proclaim the message of Christ's kingdom. You serve the king as a herald first and foremost, and that gives you great courage and comfort as you proclaim, not apologizing for the message at all, but just saying, here's the truth. I'm proclaiming to you as a representative of the king, here's his message. Will you accept or not? You're an ambassador. You're a representative of the kingdom. And you, as a representative of that kingdom, are bringing the kingdom of heaven near through your person in your character, deeds, and proclamation. As a representative of that kingdom, as a kingdom citizen, you, are, you can say the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near because you're a representative of that kingdom and you're near them. And it's all about the proclamation. We are a word-based people. We are a word-based people. Jesus gives a message to proclaim. Can you, you're brought in, this is, if you're in Christ, you're brought into this message. You are a representative. Can you accurately and succinctly proclaim the message of the gospel? The gospel of the kingdom. Or another way to put that, is the gospel important to you? And I don't just mean, we've said this again and again, I'll keep saying it, the gospel is not just the entryway into the Christian life, the gospel is important for your whole Christian life. Every day, uh, I am a sinner, and so every day, I need to repent and entrust myself to Christ to know that today, I stand before a holy God who would judge me and send me to hell apart from his grace. I stand clean, I stand acceptable, because of Christ and his death on my behalf and his righteousness and my place alone. We need that every day. If it's not important to you and you're not rehearsing it to yourself every day, then the likelihood is that you're not going to see the necessity of sharing it every day. Isn't that true? We talk about the things that we love, that we seem are important to us. And the reality is when, we, when we're rehearsing the gospel to ourselves and we say, this is the message that I need for my heart today, and I'm rehearsing that each and every day, well, you're going to be in tune with the gospel, and guess what? You're going to be more in tune with the people you encounter on a day-to-day basis and say, friend, this is what's giving me life today. Let me proclaim to you that life. Let me proclaim to you as a herald and representative of that kingdom, the kingdom of God. Can you do that? Can you do that? If not, get to work because Jesus has put you to work in proclaiming to be a representative of the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel. So that's the proper message. There's also a proper compassion 
There's a proper message, there's a proper compassion that comes along with the gospel. Look at verse 8. The sick heal, the dead raise, the lepers cleanse, the demons cast out. Now, those are the exact same things that Jesus himself has been doing in Matthew 8 and 9. And we saw in Matthew 10.1 that Jesus has passed that authority on to his 12. This is something that only the 12 get to do. It's not, it's not that Matthew is saying, okay, uh, Jewish Christians, you should be expecting to heal people. You should be expecting to raise people from the dead. No, because we saw very explicitly in 10.1 that that authority was given to these 12 in particular. They're in their ministry going to Israel, going in Galilee. They are giving foretastes of the kingdom in seeing dead people raised, people healed, uh, lepers cleansed. Like this is, this is a foretaste of what the kingdom is going to look like. And so in their mission to Israel, they get to display that. But like we said, what's the timeless principle? There's a timeless principle for uh, the apostles, for Matthew's audience, and for us. And it's this. These are acts of compassion. These are acts of compassion. This is a foretaste of the, the beauty, the, re, the, the glory, of the, 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 the peace of the kingdom. Now, we may not be able to cast out demons or raise people from the dead, but what those acts are doing, they're showing concrete acts of compassion. Well, can't we show concrete acts of compassion to those we're proclaiming? Absolutely. I can't raise the dead, I can't heal you, but I can still show compassion in very concrete ways to you as I proclaim the message. So here's what you got to see. You can't take the word... The word is primary, the message is primary, but you can't divorce that from acts of compassion. Uh, the, uh, what backs up your words is acts of compassion, and what backs up your acts of compassion is the words. Both need to be present. Both need to be present because we're demonstrating, even through the limited ways in which we are to show acts of compassion, we are demonstrating the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like in small measure. It gives you a foretaste of what's coming. We do that as a people. It's not just an individual thing. We show acts of compassion to each other here in the church as an embassy of that kingdom. Why? To display this is a small, small foretaste of what is coming when Jesus comes again. Are you demonstrating concrete acts of compassion to those to whom you are proclaiming the gospel? And for that matter, are you showing acts of compassion to here, right? Showing the culture, showing the culture of the kingdom among the embassy of the kingdom. Because when people see that, people come from outside and they see a culture of compassion among the church's members, well, that backs up the church's proclamation of the gospel. Words should reinforce actions and what should reinforce words. So we've got the proper message, the proper compassion, and then there's a proper preparation, a proper preparation. Look at the end of verse 8. Jesus says this, Freely you received, freely give. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that uh, I proclaimed the gospel to you guys, to the disciples. You repented and entrusted yourself to me. Uh, I gave it to you freely. I gave uh, miracles to you freely. 
you receive freely. I didn't charge you for them. So you're not charging for them. You're not going out trying to make a profit. You're not trying to go out saying, hey, look, I did a miracle. What are you going to give me? You're not going out saying, here's the message uh, uh, that I'm going to proclaim to you. What are you going to give me? That's not the motivation. So as you, they go out, he's preparing them saying, you're not going into this for profit. You're not going into this for profit because you didn't receive with profit. That's what grace is. Grace means that there was no merit at all in it, right? God, we, we are in Christ. We have repented only because God said, let there be light in our hearts. We receive freely. We don't charge for the gospel. So that's the first way they're to prepare, but there's more. Look at verse 9. Do not acquire gold, neither silver, neither copper for your belts. Do not a, a cent, do not, uh, nor a, not a, a leather bag for your journey, neither two tunics, neither sandals, neither a staff. Now, what's this? Well, I think, notice the language he's using, uh, a leather pouch for the way. All of this is kind of under this overarching command of don't acquire. He's not talking about earning money, because he just addressed that at the end of uh, verse 8. He's talking about taking along provisions for a journey. Taking along provisions for a journey. Uh, you know, when you pack for a vacation, it's good to take some extra pairs of clothes along. It's good to take um, some money, some spending money for the trip. And that's what he's addressing here. He's saying, don't pack money for your trip. Don't pack an extra satchel. Uh, don't bring some extra clothes. Uh, don't bring extra sandals. Don't bring a new or an extra staff. Now, that's an odd packing list, isn't it? It's kind of like the exact opposite of what your mom would tell you to do, right? This is, this is like, what? And, you know, isn't that risky? Even at, you're going out and you're going among these people and you're proclaiming this message and you're not supposed to take any provisions along? That, that seems awfully risky. Well, that's what Jesus was doing, right? He was the son of man who had nowhere to lay his head. So the apostles are supposed to be representatives of the same thing and saying, all right, we're not going to take anything along. Why? Because just like Jesus... They are to be dependent on the Father in heaven to provide their needs. Remember Matthew 6, do not be anxious because the Father in heaven is going to provide your needs. Seek first the kingdom. This is an application of that. So what's going on here is you say, don't prepare because as you go out, well, and he supports it, right? What does he say at the end of verse 10? For the worker, same word he used, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, the workers are few, for the worker is worthy of his provisions. Uh, you, the ESV says food. Uh, this word can also mean provisions in general, which is exactly what Jesus has been talking about. For the worker is worthy of his provisions. Who's he working for? Jesus, and ultimately the Father. So who's paying or providing what is necessary? The Father, based on what Jesus has said in Matthew 6, don't be anxious, your Father's going to provide what you need, seek first the kingdom. 
Now, that's ultimately true, but what is Jesus expecting? He's expecting that as these folks go along, and it's very clear in the the next section that we're going to look at, they're going to go along, and someone is going to invite them into their home and give them room and board. And so the immediate uh, cause, the immediate provision is going to come from houses and hospitality along the way, but ultimately, ultimately the provision is coming from the master of the harvest, from Jesus himself, and ultimately the Father in heaven. Now, these is, this is one of those things that was a temporary, a situation-specific requirement. How do I know that? Well, because in Luke 22, at the Last Supper, Jesus actually references this, and he says, now, when you guys went out with not taking provisions with you, uh, did you lack anything? They said, no, no. And through that, what was, God was demonstrating his kingdom another way. If you're the kingdom's herald, then the king's going to provide for you. And so God provided for them, and God was honored through that. But Jesus says in the Last Supper, yeah, you didn't lack anything, but now I'm telling you, now I'm telling you, take the extra stuff along, because now you're going to be outcasts in society. So this is situation-specific, but what's there for us? Whether you provide for your mission or whether you, know, whether you fundraise, uh, whether you provide in some tangible way, okay, I'm taking money along, I'm taking extra clothes, whatever, you're, you're providing for your mission or whether you're doing this that the apostles were doing, what remains constant is dependence. Dependence on the Father to provide what is necessary to do the mission. Dependence on the Father to provide what is necessary from the mission. And what that's going to involve is risk. It's going to involve risk. John Piper has a little pamphlet that's entitled, Risk is Right. And it's a good little pamphlet because there are times when you are going to see something that you think you ought to do for God's glory and for the kingdom, for the salvation of souls, and you're not going to be have all your provisions in order. You're not going to have all your I's uh, dotted and your T's crossed. That happened to Ashley and I when we were thinking about um, going to Malawi. I, uh, here I am, a year in seminary, like I'm in my second semester, and I hear about this opportunity to go help with a TMAI training center in Malawi, and it's like, okay, yeah, that's weird. I don't think that's going to work. Um, doesn't work out logistically. We prayed about it. God moved us. Okay, yeah, I think this is something we should do, but... I don't know how we're going to raise $35,000 in like three months. I don't know how I'm going to, that's going to happen. And it was this testing ground where God moved us and grew us and said, yeah, we depend on the Father, the one who's going to supply the needs. And he did. He did. Not because we're anything, but because he's the king and he backs his people on mission. Do you take risks for the sake of God's kingdom, trusting in the Father's provision. You must not be presumptuous. We're not talking about presumption here. We're not talking about being foolish, right? But we're talking about seeking first God's aims, and that's going to mean that you will take risks when you don't know how things are going to work out. God is honored, and when God, things do work out, God is then honored and shows that I'm the king backing this representative of the kingdom. God is honored when we take such risks for his glory, and he will supply your needs. 
He will supply your needs. Not how you get to define them, but how he defines them. But he will supply your needs. Maybe, and sometimes it's not like a big thing, right? Sometimes we think of risk. Oh, that's really risky. It's really kind of dicey. But sometimes taking a risk is like knocking on the door of your neighbor and saying, hi, my name is so-and-so. I live next door to you. Uh, and then you get into a conversation. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I go to church. This is what I believe. That feels risky, doesn't it? Well, you take those risks depending on the Father as you do that. So we've seen we need to work for Israel. And then everything we just saw with the proper message, the proper compassion, the proper preparation falls under the heading of working with proper methods. And now we see this. We need to work for the peace of the worthy. Work for the peace of the worthy. Look at verse 11. So what did Jesus just do? He said, okay, uh, don't go here, but go here. Now, as you're going, here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to be proclaimers. That's what you do. You match that with compassion. You match that with the proper proclamation. Now, then he elaborates essentially on what he just left off with, right? For the worker is worthy of his provision. Well, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, he elaborates on that in verses 11 through 15. But into whichever city or village you enter investigate who in it is worthy, and there remain until you depart. Notice the similar language of worthiness. What is this language of worthiness? Well, he just called the disciples worthy, right? They should be worthy workers. And as we walk through this section in 11 through 15, what you're going to see, especially in verse 14, is someone who's worthy is someone who listens to the proclamation and responds to it. Jesus isn't talking about, okay, you're, you've got all this moral stuff going for you, and that makes you worthy. No, no one is worthy of God's grace, but what makes one worthy of God's kingdom is listening and heeding the message of repentance and faith. And that's what he's talking about. He, you can kind of think of the situation like this. The disciples are supposed to go out. They're going out kind of by twos and twos. Another gospel tells us that. They're going out two by twos. So they go into the town square and they start preaching. They start proclaiming the gospel. They start proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And not everyone's listening, but there's someone's like, yeah, okay. I hear about this Jesus and I, I, I see the miracles that you're doing. God must be behind you. They're listening to the message. I want to repent. I want to be a follower of this Jesus. They're worthy. Not because of anything in themselves, but because they've listened to the message. And so Jesus says, all right, they're going to invite you into your home. That's not an unusual thing in that culture. It was very common. Uh, it still is in Middle Eastern culture. You're uh, hosting someone. Hospitality someone is very, very key. So it wasn't uncommon to invite people even people you don't really know that well, into your home to have them stay with you. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you find that person, stay there until you depart. And what's the idea? Don't, don't try to freeload off of a bunch of people. Again, you're not doing this for profit. Just stay with the person who invited you into their home to begin with. But then he elaborates even more, starting in verse 12. What does this look like? What does this look like? Okay, you're going to enter this house in this village. Verse 12. Now, entering into the house, and the idea is it kind of, he kind of does a double thing here, right? You're entering into a home, but you're entering into a household. 
Greet it. Greet the household. So you're entering this, you find this person who's responding, at least initially, to your message. Enter into the household and greet it. Now, what does he mean by greet it? Well, you're going to see in a minute here this language of peace, and the common greeting would have been shalom, peace, peace to you. Notice what he says in verse 13. And if uh, the household should be worthy, let your peace come upon it. Let your peace come upon it. What does that mean? Well, again, it's this greeting of peace to this house. It's, it's trying to, to pronounce God's blessing on the house. Now, that was a normal greeting of the day, but for Jesus' disciples, that has even more force behind it. Uh, Turn back if you want to, you don't have to necessarily, to Ezekiel 34. Remember, Ezekiel 34 forms the large backdrop of this passage. And remember how Ezekiel 34 ends. Ezekiel 34, 25, so it's talking about regathering the flock of Israel, regathering under David, regathering under God as the ultimate shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 25 says this, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am Yahweh when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. So it's not just a common greeting. They are extending the new covenant peace to these people. As they respond, as this household, as this village responds, the disciples, the apostles are working for this peace. And this peace, you can already see in Ezekiel 34, it's, it's not merely the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of total well-being and flourishing. Or to put it in another way, it's the sort of peace that was in Eden when things began. That's where God is driving everything back. And as the disciples go, as people listen to their message, they're working for their peace so that they might have that new covenant peace. The disciples have it in measure. They're looking forward to the future kingdom, to the fullness of that. So that's why Jesus says in verse 13, And if on the one hand, the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if the household is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So initially, it seems like they're responding to this message. But as time goes on, uh, oh, you're not listening. You're not listening to this message. We're actually withdrawing our peace. We're withdrawing our peace from you. Jesus elaborates even more. Verse 14, what does this look like? And whoever might not welcome you, neither listen to your words. Remember, the central piece of this is that proclamation, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Going outside of the house or, the, uh, or the, that city, shake out the dust of your feet. So notice, the person who's not worthy is the person who doesn't welcome the messengers nor the message. They refuse to listen. And so what's supposed to happen, that the apostles are supposed to leave that city, leave that household, go outside, and shake out their, the gathered dust of their feet. What's the idea? Well, you're walking along with sandals on dusty uh, Palestine roads. 
you get a lot of dust, not just on your sandals, but also on your clothes. And the idea was, uh, and the Jews would do this, if they went through a Samaritan territory or they went through a Gentile territory, after they got out of it, they would shake out their robes and their feet, and they would say, we don't, we don't want the uncleanness of the Samaritans and of the Gentiles to cling to this. So what this is happening here is the same thing. It's the apostles disassociating themselves from this household or this village. It's an act of judgment saying, you refuse the message, you are unclean, you are unworthy. You are unworthy of the kingdom. And Jesus backs this up. He backs this up in verse 15. He, we get that first, truly I say to you, which is just highlighting and this promise that he's making at the end of verse 15. And he says this, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable with reference to the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than with reference to that city. Now let's think about that for a minute. Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened? Uh, Matthew, or sorry, not Matthew, Genesis 18 and 19, we've got these two angels, two messengers that come into Sodom, and they're essentially, uh, and the only people that welcome them is Lot. Lot welcomes them in, the messengers into his home, and not even his whole household, but at least him and a couple of his daughters listen to the message of destruction is coming, you need to get out. What's the rest of the city doing? You've got these immoral men, the whole men of the city coming, into, coming to the door and saying, wanting to do an immoral act with, with the messengers, with the angels. And Ezekiel 16.49 and 50 adds another dimension. It says that Sodom was rich, prosperous, but it didn't care for the poor and needy. It was, had prosperous ease. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying, for the, town, the households and the towns that don't listen to you guys, you as my messengers, and don't listen to the message, the judgment is worse than the judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's worse judgment for those who hear the gospel, hear the message, hear the gospel of the kingdom, and reject it. Maybe, maybe it's not even as violent as what you saw in Sodom and Gomorrah, but no, no thank you. Uh, no, we're good. There is more judgment for that person for that town, for that household, than for Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because it's a clear message. It's a clear proclamation. God's judgment is coming. How do you be saved? Repent and entrust yourself to the Messiah to rescue from judgment. That's your only way of salvation. If you reject that, you are facing worse judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah face. You see, we work for peace. The gospel is a gospel of peace. But when that's rejected, that peace, when that peace is withdrawn, it is, it is a gospel of judgment. It's, it's judgment. It's a message of God's judgment. And notice even here, it, it's not just that like God says, okay, shake off. Uh, uh, um, he's not just saying, all right, they're under my judgment, leave. He tells them to shake off their feet. Indivisibly. Why does he do that? Because 
that's the last-ditch effort for these people that have heard the gospel clearly. It's like grabbing them by the shoulders and saying, wake up. If you don't change, you are going to face worse judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's even grace in that final proclamation of judgment. You are going to face God's judgment in the future unless you heed the message, unless you repent. And that's exactly the same for us. The gospel we preach is a gospel of peace. The good of the good news is God himself, to dwell in God's presence, to enjoy him, to delight in him for all eternity. But the reality is we can't because we're sinners. We, we want ourselves on the throne rather than God. We want to make our own choices rather than to submit to God's way. And so we deserve God's judgment as rebels. We deserve his wrath. We deserve hell as what Jesus will say. We, hell is God unleashing his full justice on a people who have rejected him and his beauty, his majesty. It's a trading him for the creation. That is what hell is. We can't draw near because we're sinners, but Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Matthew 1.21. To become that Passover lamb slaughtered for the sins of his people, and not merely to be slaughtered for the sins of his people, but to be the perfectly righteous God-man whose perfect human righteousness is accounted to his people, to those who will repent, turn their allegiance from sin and self, and entrust themselves to him, have him as their Lord, him as their master, him as their God. That is the gospel of peace. You've just heard it. And the kingdom of heaven is near in this place. It's near in us individually as representatives of, the, of this kingdom. But it's, here, it's near here as a local church because we are an embassy of that kingdom. You hear a message of repentance and faith to escape God's judgment week in and week out. You see the changed lives of those who will respond to that message. You see people change here. They're different here. There's a culture that's different here. Because they've responded to that message. You see here in this church joy, conquering of sin, and true love. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. But the message of peace is a message of judgment who will not heed that message. Maybe you're here today and you're just sitting in the pew and you're saying, yeah, 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 I get it. Let's get out and go to lunch. Right? I, I, I don't need the gospel. I don't need the gospel. And friend, you are under greater judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. And I beg you, repent and entrust yourself to Christ. It's the only way. Turn your allegiance from self. We are, we are very individualistic. We want to rule our own lives. No, you need to repent and entrust yourself to Christ but the, because the kingdom of heaven has drawn near to you. message of peace is a message of judgment who will not heed the message, repent and swear allegiance to Christ. You will experience the just, fiery wrath of a holy God for all eternity, more so even than Sodom, if you do not heed the gospel and repent. Not just in an initial way, but for your whole life. The gospel is for our whole life. And for those of us who know this, we know the gospel, we know Christ, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of his grace, as we are on this mission proclaiming the kingdom, 
what do we do? We need to proclaim God's judgment. We need to proclaim God's judgment clearly and with broken hearts as you proclaim the kingdom. We warn out of love. We, even as the local church, we pronounce judgment. Why? Because we're trying to shake people by the shoulder saying, wake up, repent, because you're on the path to God's eternal wrath. That's the most crisp and devastating boundary that God draws for all eternity, heaven and hell, the common and the uncommon. But, how do we draw near? How do we escape through repentance and faith, through the perfect Christ who lived the perfect life in place of his people, who died in their behalf, the perfect, infinitely valuable Christ, dying for his people's sins and righteous in their behalf. Trust yourself to Christ. If you need to do that today, talk to me, talk to Steve, talk to someone around you, because this is serious. This is serious. Heaven and hell are at stake. Work Jesus' harvest of his people for their peace following his orders. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, Lord God, it's ultimately dependent on you. You are the person, you, you are the one who says, let there be light and enlighten someone, removes the veil so that they might come to Christ. I pray if there are any here in this congregation who do not know you, you would open their eyes, you would grant them repentance and they would, they would be part of this embassy where the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the mission you put us on. Help us to be faithful, to proclaim it. Help us to be dependent on you. We love you. We thank you for saving us. In Christ's name, amen. You can stand with me for the benediction, but remember the members' discussion. We'll regather at maybe, say, 1220. But... Isaiah 52, verse 7. Well... It's always awkward when you, uh, you write down the wrong reference for your, uh, your benediction. May you receive God's grace to receive his peace. You were sent.